Have any of you heard of St. Francis? Man lived a very long time ago, a few of you. He, uh, he was a Christian, a believer. And if you search him on the internet, he's often attributed with saying a bunch of stuff he didn't actually say. Uh, but St. Francis was a man who, being a believer, wanted to do this very thing we're talking about today, wanted to love better, wanted to demonstrate Jesus at every opportunity. But he also lived at a day and time when leprosy was rampant, not just in the world, but in his, his particular area of the world. And something within him, that disease itself caused him great terror, as it would anyone. You know, it, it was a daily occurrence for them, people with leprosy throughout the town, usually on the fringes of the town. But there wasn't a whole lot known about it, except that it was devastating, more often than not fatal, extremely painful, and highly contagious. And it scared St. Francis to the core. And one day he was walking through the town, through this narrow road through the town, bright sunlight, very hot, and he looks up, walking towards him down this path is a man riddled with leprosy. It's just obvious from the uh, white patches on his skin to the missing parts of his face that this man had leprosy. And Francis is, is he's, he's walking down this narrow uh, uh, street and there's not really much room to get around without brushing shoulders with anyone. And he writes in him in that moment, he sees this, this leprous man coming towards him that a tinge of disgust and fear surge almost uncontrollably within him. But he's convicted as well. And just as quickly as it came, it fades. And he feels the love of the Lord for this leprous man so much so that he runs towards the leprous man, hugs him, and kisses him on the face. The man passes by. Francis passes by. And he's feeling this, this love in his heart, this love of a decision that he made to love the man rather than fear the man, that he turns around just to look with a huge smile on his face just to get one more look at the man. He's walked three steps, turns around, and the man's not there anymore. Francis writes, he says, to this day, there's no doubt in my mind that was Jesus on that path that day. And he wanted to see if the love that I spoke of to so many was just as resolute in my heart as I wanted it to be in others. So how can he do that? How can he love better? How can he go and hug and kiss the face of somebody with leprosy? And how powerful a message that would send to anybody and everybody, but to himself as well. Because love is a choice that we have to make. And it often conflicts with our nature, our upbringing, our experiences, even our feelings. You have to choose it rather than feel it. Because feelings come and go. 
You can have a bad taco for lunch and you're going to feel something this afternoon you're not feeling right now. But if you decide ahead of time, it's going to change your outlook, change your perspective. We're going to look at this in John chapter 13, Jesus talking about this idea, loving better. John chapter 13, if you're going to use a Bible on the pew rack, it's on page 900 if you want to turn there, page 900. And if you don't have a Bible, take one of those Bibles home with you. Everyone needs one. Take it. It's yours. That's why we have them. John chapter 13, we're going to be down in verse 31. John writes, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And so this is a moment. This is the Passover meal. This is the Lord's Supper. This is just hours away from Jesus being arrested, tried, and crucified. And he's there with his disciples. And he says, now is the moment that God is glorified as we're going to leave this room and we're going to go out to the mountain and I'm going to pray and then be arrested and then be crucified and killed and then raised from the dead. This is the moment of God's glory. God's glory being revealed through the salvation plan that God had announced at uh, G- Genesis chapter 3 at the first sin that he had planned to bring salvation to the world. He says, now is this moment. Verse 33, Jesus said, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now this is a statement that terrifies the disciples. He tells them, he's told them many times, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, but don't worry, I'm going to raise from the dead three days later. But they didn't hear any of that. You know, it was only a first century problem. Nobody has selective hearing anymore. It was just way back then. But they, they heard, Jesus said it, but they didn't hear it. You ever have anybody in your life where you say something, but they don't hear it? Don't elbow the person next to you. But Jesus is telling them now, okay, guys, this is the moment. I'm going to leave you. I'm going somewhere that you cannot come yet. And that is going to sink into the disciples. He's going to tell them all kinds of great things in just a second. But they're not going to hear any of that. They're just going to hear, he's about to leave. And this anxiety wells up within them. So much so that he opens, actually, John chapter 14. And he tells them, I am going, but where I am going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and bring you to where, that where I am, you may be also. That, John 14, was a response to their fear from this, him telling them this. And so he says, I'm leaving you in just a minute. But then he says this, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by this love, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So he says, this is how people are going to know you're a Christian, if you love one another. If you love one another. Not by the t-shirt you wear, not by the bracelet you wear, not by the bio on your social media profile, but how you love one another. That's how people will know that we have been together, Jesus is telling them. Tony, go back to the previous verse, verse 34. When he says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. 
Does that seem like a new idea, a new concept to any of you guys? But Jesus is introducing this to the disciples of this is a new commandment. This is different than what you've heard before. Because back in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. You heard that statement? Love your neighbor as yourself. Here Jesus is saying, that's what you've heard, but we're going to do more than that. We're going to do more than loving your neighbor as yourself. You're going to love everyone as I have loved you. This loving your neighbor as yourself, that makes you the measure of love. He says, we're going to change that, and now it's going to be love everyone as I have loved you. Now Jesus is the measure of love. Not you, Jesus. Because we as human beings are flawed. Did you know every human being in your life is flawed? Maybe you point it out to them on a regular basis. <laughs> Maybe it's pointed out to you on a regular basis. Our, our, our love tends to wax and wane with our emotion, with how we're feeling that day, with our attitude. But Jesus is saying love isn't that way. True love from God doesn't wax and wane. It's a decision that you make that is set. You make it ahead of time. You make it for all time. And he's saying this is the commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus is saying this moments from being arrested and all of his disciples who are there in front of them who make a statement, we love you, we will never abandon you, and then they will abandon him. They run scared through the night, leaving Jesus alone. And Jesus, knowing that, still says, I love you. I know you're gonna run away from me. I know you're gonna abandon me but I love you anyway. But not only that, this blew my mind. You know what happens right before this, this passage? Right before this happens, when Jesus says, this is how people are gonna know you're my disciples if you love one another. You know what happened right before this? Judas walked out of the room to betray Jesus. Judas had just walked out of the room to go get the mob to bring them to arrest Jesus. It's as though Jesus is telling his disciples, don't treat him poorly. Don't speak of him poorly. Rather, love him. Love him. Love him. Jesus washed Judas' feet. Do you think that moment in, in, in the upper room was the only time he washed these guys' feet? I doubt it very seriously. He was teaching them. Most of the things that Jesus did and said, he did on a repeated basis so they would get it. And he's ministered. He chose Judas from the crowd as a follower, as a disciple, knowing full well what was coming. Jesus loved on Judas, knowing what was coming. And he tells his disciples right after Judas walks out, I mean, you look there in verse 31, he says, when he had gone out, that's what had just happened. Judas had just closed the door and Jesus turns to them and says, I'm leaving, but you guys need to love one another. All of you love one another. Even the one who just left. They didn't know what he was going. They didn't know what he was going to do. But he's trying to stick it in their minds. He's going to betray me. You got to love him anyway. People like him anyway. As I love you. As I love you. You. you know, there's a passage of scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when Paul is writing to these people and he tells them, you need to work on your love. Work on it. 
He says, work and work more and more so you can love better. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 9 through 12. Work more and more to love one another. And he says, this is how you, this will help you. This is a demonstration of your love. He says, so that you will live quietly and mind your own affairs. Y'all know many people who mind their own business? Or y'all know people who mind the business of everybody else? I'm not saying any of y'all mind everybody else's business. I'm avoiding some of your eyeballs because I know you do. <laughs> Paul says, live quietly and mind your own affairs. And, and if you work more and more on your love, as he tells him in that passage, then you will live quietly and mind your own affairs. And so what, what Paul is saying, the inverse of that is also true then. If you're not loving well, then you are minding the affairs of others. What's another way to say that? Gossiping. Gossiping. Gossiping is not a loving action by any stretch of the imagination. To love is not to gossip. And you know what that word gossip means in the original language? It means to talk nonsense, to tattle. That means it doesn't have to be a lie to be gossip. It just has to be any kind of negative comment about somebody else. That's what scripture says is gossip. Anything that is negative about somebody else, that's gossip. And it's gossip whether you say it or think it. Just because it doesn't come out of your mouth doesn't mean it's not still gossip. If it's negative about somebody else, that's an, <clears throat> that's an effort for all of us to try to tear somebody else down. And I don't know if you've ever been self-aware enough to know, I mean, that when you tear somebody else down, it makes you feel better. You, 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 you feel better bigger than them. You feel better than them because that's our sin nature within us, trying to pump us up and get us to think more that way. So to gossip is not to love, but in the same way, refusing gossip is choosing love. Refusing gossip is choosing love. And it's not just refusing to think it, refusing to say it. It's refusing to tolerate it. Refusing to have people in front of you talk it out. Negative thoughts, negative words. And that will shut it all down. You know, there was a, uh, one of the biggest churches in the country out in California, Saddleback, founded by Rick Warren, who wrote Purpose Driven Life. Y'all ever heard of Purpose Driven Life? One of the top most selling books of all time behind the Bible. He, when he founded that church, he said one of their core principles as members of the church to join the church you have to sign this covenant and in the covenant it says I will not gossip and I will not tolerate gossip he gives everyone the authority to shut it down if anybody else in the room is speaking gossip in any capacity he says stop it nothing can bring a church down faster than the root of gossip because it creates disunity which destroys what God is trying to do. Because what did Jesus just say there that we read in verse 35? All people will know my, that you are my disciples if you love one another. That means if you're not gossiping, if you're not speaking negatively about other people, if you're not allowing that to fester within you, or maybe you do it in the holy way in, in, in your small group class and you disguise it as a prayer request. 
man, you guys got to pray for so-and-so, you know, because they're into such-and-such. You need to really, they need Jesus bad. And let me tell you about their cousin because they're into this other stuff. You need to pray for them too. Let's just bless their heart, you know. You just need to get them. And, and not that we shouldn't say a prayer requests like that. We absolutely should. But when the underlying motivation is to spread gossip and not Jesus, then that's the problem. That's creating the very thing Jesus is speaking against here. We need to be loving towards one another. You know, there's a story I heard many years ago, and I looked it up to make sure I had it right. Socrates, the great philosopher, had three filters through which he received any information. And he tells the story. One day, an acquaintance came to him, met him in the street, and said, Socrates, I got something to tell you about one of your friends. Socrates stopped him. He said, hang on, before you tell me, I got these three filters first. He says, okay, first question, first filter. Is it true? And the guy said, oh, yes, this guy, he told me about it. And he said, okay, but did you see it? Did you witness it? And the guy said, no, I didn't, I didn't see it, but the guy, he's a trusted, trusted friend. He's, he, he knows. He said, well, if you didn't see it, then you don't know it's true. They may be a trusted source to you, but if you didn't see it, you can't be 100% sure that it's true. So it's not, so you don't know it's true. I said, okay, so we're done past that one. Filter number two, is it good? Is what you're going to say about my friend, is it good? And the guy said, well, not really, but I thought you should, you really need to know. I said, well, okay, so hang on a second. So what you want to tell me about my friend is bad, and you don't know if it's true or not. He says, oh, well, Okay. Socrates goes, well, the third filter is what you're going to tell me useful. Will it help me in any capacity? And the guy kind of looked down and said, well, no, I just, you know, wanted to tell you. You know, I thought you should, he's your, I thought you wanted, you should know. He said, so it's not good. It's probably not true. You don't know if it's true and it won't help me at all. So I don't want to know it. And Socrates walked away. He says, There's, if we're spreading gossip, it doesn't do any good whatsoever besides change our opinion of each other in a negative fashion rather than pray for each other, rather than love each other. Because if all we're doing is harboring these negative thoughts and negative words about other people, then we're not displaying the love that we need to be doing. We're just tearing them down and tearing them down and we're doing the devil's work for him. Instead of offering the love that Jesus has offered to us. So the question with us should shift from can you believe what they did? To, as I heard one preacher say, what does love require of me in this situation? But that begs the question, what exactly is love? The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3.16, he said, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for one another, for other people. That's how we can know what love is. If we sacrifice ourselves for each other, if we surrender our own personal preferences and wants and pride and give it up. That's how we know what 
love is. And John, two verses later, 1 John 3, 18, he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Saying it means nothing if you're not doing it. Love is a decision that we make and an action that we do. We decide to do it and we love each other through what we do, through, through how we support, through how we speak, through how we think. We love through action. We love through decision. And Jesus is the ultimate example of love. And so love mimics Jesus. If somebody doesn't know Jesus, they don't know how to truly love in the way God designed it. But in the same way, I know a lot of people who know Jesus who don't demonstrate love all that well. There's many days I don't demonstrate love all that well. And so it really all boils down to choice, choosing to love. You know, in John 3, 16, it said God loved the world. God chose to love the world. He chose to love the world. He didn't feel love towards the world. He chose it. Knowing the world was full of people who would reject him. Knowing that the majority of the people on this planet throughout history would reject his love and his plan for salvation, he still chose to love the world anyway. He said, in spite of that, I'm going to love the world. And because I love the world, I'm going to send Jesus to die and raise from the dead. So his love was demonstrated in the act of sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. His love was exactly what John wrote there in John chapter 3. Not just talk, but deed and truth. He chose to love. And love is, is... a choice that we make, whether or not it's reciprocated back to us, but hoping all along that it will be. Even if the person we're loving outright not just rejects it, but throws it in our face, love is still a choice made even when that happens. Because God did that for us by sending Jesus when we were still in the midst of our sin But that's the problem, though, too, because if we're giving the opportunity to choose love, then we're also given the opportunity not to choose love. That's where sin comes into the equation there, because we're given the the option to choose to love God, so we also have the option to choose not to love God. We have the option to do something else. But love has to be a choice, otherwise it's not, not love. If love were forced, some people would say, how can a good God allow evil and suffering in the world? Well, it's not that a good God allows all this suffering. It's that God wanted love to exist in the world. He loves us, and he wants us to love him in return. And if love ha- exists then the option to choose not to engage in that love has to also exist. Otherwise, there would be no love. And so the reason that there is evil and suffering in the world is because the world is broken, and the world is broken because of sin. The world is broken because we as humanity chose to reject that love and allow sin to break God's perfect world. God's world was perfect when he made it. If you look back at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it was absolutely perfect. No evil, no suffering. If you look, flip to the end of the book. Look in Revelation 21 and 22. No pain, no suffering, no grief, no death. Why? Because there's no sin. 
So you have Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3. Sin comes into the world. Adam and Eve choose sin rather than loving God. And because they chose sin, sin broke God's perfect system. Broke it. And in that moment, evil and suffering entered the world. And it would only get worse. Disease came in the world because of the broken system. Cancer came into the world because of the broken system. Because of sin. And it is so broken if you go again, read Revelation 21 and 22 into the book, God's going to not just fix the world because a band is not going to fix the broken system. He's going to give a new world. It says a new heaven and a new earth are going to come. It's going to be a new place, brand new, untarnished by sin, untarnished by evil. That's why there's no more suffering and difficulty and, and death because he gives us a new place that we're going to have. And so we have to choose then. Our nature is to want to choose not to love. Our nature is to want to choose sin. You don't have to teach a baby to, to be bad. They're bad all on their own. I saw the parents go, yeah, absolutely, yes. That is for sure. You got to teach them what's right because it doesn't come natural. And some of us grow up not having... Anybody show us what's right, what's true, what is the way of Jesus. And that's on us who do know Jesus to help point each other towards him. That is the ultimate, ultimate display of love, bringing people to Jesus. Bringing people to Jesus. Because look at it. God chose to love us. And that's the thing about God. He will always choose to love. He will always love you. Always. Always. He will always love this world. He will love everybody in this world, even when other people won't. Even when other people choose not to love, God will love. God will love. But we just read Jesus telling his disciples. We read John, one of those disciples, writing about love in, in 1 John chapter 3. We talked about Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, saying we should work more and more uh, to, to, to demonstrate our love. Because love is so vitally important in how we treat each other, in how we display that love. That we've got to love all of us, everybody. Not call each other a bunch of names, derogatory names. Not put each other down. Love each other. Love each other. You know, look at these candles down here. Every Sunday... Uh, I come to church early, and I bring one of my kids. They, they rotate off, coming with me early. And we come to church, and, and they part of their, their duties when they get here is to turn all these candles on. And these candles represent people who have come to know Jesus as a direct result of the ministry of our church in the last two years. And uh, they come, they turn them on this morning. Liam was here early with me. And we noticed a bunch of the candles were off. They weren't working. We flipped them on, and they weren't working. And so we pulled all those out, and we went and got new batteries. And so these candles represent people, people. And, I mean, I gave him a little mini sermon while we were doing it. That's, that's the benefit. You come early with the preacher, you get a sermon over everything. But I left one of them. Let's see, where is it? This one right here. Some of them are kind of dimmer than others. Some of them aren't blinking as bright as others. But that's also a demonstration of us as people. Some of us have trouble sometimes, and we don't shine as bright. 
But then it's the responsibility of the rest of us to check the power source. It's not coming. There we go. Sometimes you just got to whack. Remember, this is a person. Sometimes you just got to whack them. <laughs> Take care of business. And you got to get something that will help them shine a little brighter. Get them to the power source so they can shine a little brighter. And if you plug them into the source of power, Jesus, there's going to be all kinds of shining going on. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. And see, here's the thing. Sometimes we as Christians, not only do we not shine very bright, we look down on other people who aren't shining very bright. And we call them stuff, names, tearing them down. We call them thug, crackhead, problem child. Or maybe other names. I'm not going to say from the platform. Does that mean Jesus loves them any less? Does that mean they're any worse than you? You see, the thing about church is, in church, there should never be those people. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> There's only God's people. <laughs> Nobody's any different than anybody else. In God's eyes, everybody needs Jesus' love. Everybody. Everybody. And you know the thing about Jesus? You know, we've got people who call other people names and all kinds of stuff. Jesus got called those names. You know why? He was showing love to those people. Those people. He got called the names that people were calling people he was trying to minister to because he was out there showing them love. And if we were showing love to people being called names, we'd be called the same names. Are we showing love to everybody? Everybody. Everybody. Are we wishing for other people's kids the same things we wish for our kids? Are we loving them? Are we hugging the neck of the leper? Like St. Francis. You see, because Jesus did it for us. Did it for us. He came down to this sinful world and did it for us. I love the picture of Jesus went to Jerusalem one day. And right outside the temple, there was this, this, this pool, this big grouping of water that people superstitiously believed that they got in the water first, that they'd be healed by a magic angel. And Jesus goes out there to where all this superstitious uh, behavior was. And there was a man out there who was all alone. He was, uh, he'd been alone for decades. And he told Jesus this. But you got to picture this thing. People would sit out there for days and weeks without leaving. No bathroom breaks. And so this place was filthy and nasty, disgusting because of what the people were doing around this pool, waiting for 
the opportunity to get in first. And Jesus goes down there and he walks through the muck and he walks through the gross with his undoubtedly sandals squishing and he gets down there and there's that man that he goes to reach out to that the man says, I have no one. You can look at that. Those are his words. I have no one. And Jesus goes down there and it says he knelt down to this man in the sick, in the gross. You can picture his disciples, right? Walking down there to this man through the... Oh, oh, oh. Jesus, you go, I'm going to wait over here, Jesus. These are brand new sandals. I'm, I see, that man's doing it right now. I'm not, Jesus, oh. And Jesus walks right through it and kneels down with the man. The man says, I have no one to help me. And Jesus says, you have me. Take up your mat and follow me. And they walk off, and the man leaves. And the man is confronted by the church people, by the religious people, and they say, who healed you? How dare you be walking around here carrying your mat up here in the temple? And the man said, I don't know who healed me, but I just know he did. (laughs) Jesus found him later and told him. We've got to love everybody. Even if they're sitting in a pile of gross, we've got to love them. Because in reality, spiritually, we've all been sitting in a pile of gross. And we've all had Jesus come to us and pick us up. What do they say? Jesus loves us. He loved us too much. Or he loves us so much that he'll meet us where we are. And he loved us too much to leave us there. None of us can be picked up unless it's Jesus picking us up. Everybody needs Jesus, and we got to love each other in that capacity, which means shutting down the gossip and shutting down the negative talk that comes out of our mouths, that flies through our brains, that people are doing in front of us. It means stopping it. But it also means that negative talk that people have said about you that is so ingrained in you, it's in the back of your mind on a constant basis, and you have this refrain flowing through your mind because of what people have said about you, I am never perfect enough. I am not enough. I cannot be perfect enough because this person keeps saying that and that person keeps saying this and maybe it's something that has been festering in you from childhood you've never even thought about but it's there. I'm not perfect enough. But the thing is, you bring that thought to Jesus. I'm not perfect enough and he'll take it and he'll say, I love you, come to me. I'm perfect enough for both of us. Jesus can take it all. He loves all. How is your love today? How is your love today? Choosing to love the people in your house. Choosing to love the people on your street. Choosing to love those people on social media who say that stuff. Choosing to love the people you see walking the halls here at church. You may want to whack a battery out of them. Do you choose to love in the same way Jesus loved? No longer saying, I'm not going to love my neighbor as myself anymore. I'm going to love everybody as Jesus loves everybody. He's the measure of love from here on out. How is your love today? Maybe you need to come to the realization that Jesus loves you for the very first time. He loves you. So much that he died so all your sins would be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Will you believe in Jesus today? Will you come 
to Jesus today. Come and feel the, 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 the love that he has for you. Come and experience the uh, uncapped, unlimited, without bounds love that he has. Will you come to Jesus today? If you're looking for a perfect church where everybody is loving and happy-go-lucky and phenomenal, well, it's not here, and it actually doesn't exist on this planet. But if you want a place that is working our hardest to demonstrate the love of Jesus, and here, that's what we're trying. We're not going to be perfect. We're going to screw up. We are. We're people. We all mess up because we all need Jesus. We all need somebody to come and point us back to Jesus. Do you love each other enough to point each other to Jesus at every point, at every juncture? Do you need Jesus for the first time, experience that love? Do you need the love better? By stopping the gossip, stopping the negative talk, negative thoughts. How is your love today? But know that Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so.